had mentioned last week that the sermon text was so plain and applicable that it'd be hard to not get the gist of the message. Well, this week's a little bit different. Uh, this week, it's not about us. It's easy to listen to a sermon when it's about us. <laughs> this one's not about us, but it's rather about Christ. Entirely, only, solely about Christ. And in order for us not to drift away from Christ, we have to know who this Christ is. And so this one's a much more theologically rich text than the one we covered last week. But again, the exhortation of the writer of Hebrews is pay much more close attention to what you're hearing so that you don't drift away from it. This is the word of the Lord. Hebrews chapter 2, verses uh, 5 through 18. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we're speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you're mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not shamed to call them brothers." saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I am the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Let's pray together. Our Father, we, we pray that as we read these words, there are many of them uh, in this second part of the chapter, Lord, help us not to get lost in the argumentation. Uh, Lord, help us not to lose our own train of thought by wandering uh, elsewhere, but rather we pray that we would pay much close attention uh, to this Savior, Redeemer, that has been revealed to us by the name of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to know Him to trust Him, and to keep closely to Him, we pray in His name. Amen. Uh, some of you are familiar with David Livingston, uh, missionary. Uh, many children's books have been written about him. Many adult books have been written about him. He's known as Africa's greatest missionary, even though, strangely, he only has credit for leading one person to Christ, who then later lapsed. <laughs> um, nevertheless, this 19th century physician and scientist explorer was eager to go where no missionary had ever gone before. 
He wanted to go into the very heartland of Africa, the, the interior, into the jungle for the sake of the kingdom of God. His object, he said, was to open a missionary road, God's highway, he called it, traversing 1,500 miles from South Africa into the north in order to lead millions of unreached people to faith in Jesus Christ. Of course, uh, it was not an easy journey. He took four trips into the interior. He contracted malaria 30 times. In addition to suffering from numerous bouts of pneumonia and cholera and dealing regularly with what are called tropical ulcers on his feet. I'm not quite sure what that is, but it doesn't sound good. In addition to that, he became so violently ill on one occasion that he lost entire contact with the outside world for six years. He was sick for six years. Eventually, he came back to the realm of the living, uh, but most of his companions did not. Almost every one of the people who went out with him died, and he ended up having to bury them on the way in the thick jungle uh, and across the swamps and the rivers and everywhere else he went. Um, eventually, though, he too would die in Africa from malaria and internal bleeding due to dysentery. So why? Why is he considered to be the greatest African missionary? Why are his statues still standing in numerous countries in Africa when every other European statue has been torn down and the names of the towns have been renamed? His is still standing. The first reason is because he was the pioneer. He was the trailblazer who led the way for many thousands of missionaries who would come and follow after him. He opened up Central Africa to missions. Every mission agency that goes there today has him to look to. But then in addition to that, he also was a staunch abolitionist whose greatest desire was to put an end to the East African Arab slave trade. In his books and his journals, he constantly was stirring up public support to put that system to death. Uh, in one instance, he, he gives this account in his journals where he's describing his team trying to navigate this very difficult river. They're going north, and they actually have a paddle boat with a paddle wheel on the back of it. And they can't get anywhere because it keeps getting clogged with the dead bodies of slaves who have been thrown into the river. Hundreds of them. In one account, he, he talks about an Arab trader who massacred 400 slaves in a single day simply because they didn't do what he said. Eventually, it was because of his reporting that the slave trade in Africa eventually was outlawed. Uh, so he has a lot to be remembered. He was a scientist, a statesman, a missionary, a pioneer, a man's man, and a lover of humanity. He did it all because of Jesus Christ, who was the original trailblazer. And that's sort of the point of the text this morning. In verse 10 uh, in, in our text, you'll notice that the writer of Hebrews describes Jesus as, in some of your translations, it will call him the founder of our salvation. Some of yours, it'll say the author of salvation. Some of it will say captain of our salvation. Each one of them is, is trying to state something where basically he is the representative head of a new, humani new humanity. He has led the way. He is the pioneer. He is the trailblazer for new life in Christ. We have to follow Him. And like David Livingston, Jesus is sought to lead His people out of slavery. 
and out of fear of death, out of the fear of the devil. And so he continues to elaborate on that theme. Now, uh, to put it in context, the last few weeks we've been talking about how Jesus is better or greater than the angels. Now, again, most of us don't really think about angels being all that great, but we talked about that a couple weeks ago. But the reason why this is an issue is because most of the Jewish Christians who are tempted to turn away from Christ are tempted to do that because of his humanity. They see angels as outstanding, awe-fearing creatures, and they see Jesus as simply a man. And they know men, and they're not very impressed with them. (laughs) Amen? (laughs) I always get more women on that one. Uh, But the Jews had a very, very high regard for angels. And so the point of this text now is to prove why Jesus had to become a man because his humanity is at the core of the very gospel of Christ. So I want to summarize his his argument this morning sort of in three movements. Here's the outline if you're looking to take notes. Number one, first, how humans created to be rulers became slaves. Number two, how Jesus, the better Adam, redeemed our fallen humanity. And number three, how the church in Christ Jesus is constituted to be a new humanity. So let's look at the first one. How humans created to be rulers became slaves. Verse 5, the author is continuing his argument from the previous chapter, uh, where again he's talking about the angels. He says, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, but rather, the implication is to men. He subjected the world to men. That's how it was in the beginning. God did not make the heavens and the earth for the sake of the angels. He made the heavens and the earth for the sake of men. Man is the pinnacle of God's creation. And when God is walking in the garden in the cool of the day, He's not holding the hand of an angel. He's walking with Adam and Eve. All of this was for their sake, and He put them as rulers over all the earth to be kings and queens over this creation. We were created to be rulers, not slaves. But in opposition to that, he's saying that the angels were created to be servants of men. How can we miss that? How can you look to angels when your status technically is above angels? And so he goes with that first quote in Psalm 8 that Mark read earlier. He's saying, what is man that you're mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. So David, when he's, if you remember, he's looking up at the stars and he's just in in awe and wonder of God's magnificent, grand creation. And then he looks back at me and says, what is man? Right? But then he's giving us more revelation. It's, It's like he's looking back to the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve back in Genesis 1 and 2. And he's saying, you put him in charge of everything. Verse 8, in putting everything in subjection to man, God left nothing outside of man's control. And that even includes the angels. Uh, the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3, that on the final day of judgment, it is redeemed humanity who sits in judgment upon the angels. How then could you go back to the angels when Jesus is better than them? But the, the key to his argument is in verse 8. He says, but at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. In other words, we don't see the angels in subjection to Christ, but neither do we see the creation really in subjection to Christ. And this week alone, 
uh, the amount of natural disasters that have occurred. Uh, Three million Chinese have been displaced this week because of massive flooding. All the infrastructure, all the things that they've built, wiped out in a moment. Subways full of water, people up to their necks in water. Just like that. You think about all the typhoons and hurricanes and tornadoes and wildfires. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. Then you add to that all the creatures that aren't quite as afraid of us as they perhaps ought to be. All the shark bites and bear bites and the stings and the attacks and the assaults and everything else under the sun. I was reading this week and it was almost hard not to laugh, but you felt sorry for the guy. You really did. This guy's riding his bike. He's in the news. He's riding his bike in Florida, just, you know, having his good old time doing his daily exercise. Somehow, as he's riding, the bike hits a stump and he flips over the handlebars, rolls down nine feet into the ravine, and just as the moment he's ready to lick his wounds, an alligator attacks him. And I'm thinking, man, that guy's having a bad day. (laughs) But it, it proves the point of the author. The man was created to be the ruler over creation, but at present we don't see it. We just don't see it. Why is that? Well, because man has rebelled against his creator. And in sinning against God, all the order of creation is out of order. Nothing's as it should be. Even though man is still somehow in control, it doesn't look like that he is. He's he's lost something. His, His power and his authority has been diminished by his rules. Instead of acting like rulers, men act like slaves. They're slaves to their their personal passions. They're slaves to the devil. And they're slaves to the fear of death. That's his point. They're slaves to their fear. Uh, G.K. Chesterton, a, a famous Christian, passed a generation ago. He said this, Whatever is or is not true about man, this one thing is certain. Man is not what he was meant to be. Thankfully, the Lord didn't leave us that way. Westminster Shorter Catechism, number 20, reads this way. God, having out of his mere good pleasure from all eternity, elected some to everlasting life, entered into a covenant of grace to deliver them out of that estate of sin and misery, to bring them into an estate of salvation by a Redeemer. And who is that Redeemer? Jesus, the Christ. That moves us to the second point. How Jesus, the better Adam, redeemed our fallen humanity. If you can go back and and look at the words of the second, uh, third hymn that we sing today, it pretty much covers all of this theology. But we're singing in praise unto God for such a great salvation. As the author ended his statement of verse 8, he said, at present we do not yet see everything in subjection to man. But then in verse 9, here's the big but. But we see him for a little while who was made lower the angels, namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Now what the author is doing here is he's pointing the, these persecuted believers just outside of Rome, somewhere in Italy. Uh, they're just beginning to face persecution. And he's turning their eyes heavenward to see Christ seated on his throne. He is in control. He is reigning. He is not weak. Uh, like you think he is. He's, he's better than the angels. He is in control of all of this. And they're trying to turn their eyes back to him because he is the better Adam. He became Adam. He became a man. That's what Adam means, man. He became a man in order to lead men out of slavery. But in order for him to do that, he had to take on 
our flesh and blood. And so, so for a little while, he became lower than the angels. Now for us, uh, you know, even though we were created to rule over the angels, it, you know, it was a blow for us to become men and, and lower than them. But, but for Jesus, uh, leaving his heavenly throne, leaving heaven, emptying himself of his glory to become lower than the angels in order to redeem us out of our slavery. For this reason, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, Paul says, preaching Christ crucified is a stumbling block to the Jews. What does he mean? Well, they were looking for a conquering Savior. They weren't looking for a suffering Savior. And his point is, Jesus had to become a man in order to suffer in our place. Now, uh, verse 10, he says, not only is it necessary that this was to happen, but it's fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now, he doesn't mean that Jesus became perfect morally through his suffering, but rather he became the perfect Savior, the perfect high priest by his suffering so that we can look to him with full assurance knowing that we are saved from our slavery, from our sin, from a number of other things. In fact, he's going to go on in verse 17. This is a key part of this. Not only does he save us from slavery to the devil, he saves us from the hot anger of God. Verse 17, he says that he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Why? To make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, some of your translations may not use the word propitiation, probably use the word atonement or expiation or something else. Like that. Those are very generic terms. Atonement means basically there needed to be reconciliation and there's some harmony now. That's sort of what it suggests. But it doesn't go quite far enough. That, that What the Greek is suggesting here is not merely a reconciliation, but an appeasement of God's anger against us because of our sin. He was very angry because of our sin we are rebels against our creator and he's angry because of that now we don't like to hear that nowadays but if you go all throughout the old testament why are all these sacrifices required because god is an angry wrathful god who demands that blood be shed when we sin to miss that you miss the gospel There is no good news of the gospel of free grace if we don't first have a gospel that teaches us about the wrath of a holy God who hates sin. Now, I may have mentioned it to you before, but um, perhaps you're familiar with um, the PCUSA. (laughs) It's the other, we're PCA, they're PCUSA. They're the liberal ones who have issues with Scripture. I think I can say it that way. If anybody's visiting from PCUSA today, hopefully you'll join us instead. In, in 2013, they were putting together a new hymn book. And um, they wanted to include in that hymn book the modern hymn, In Christ Alone. We sing it all the time here. You know what I'm talking about. It's, it's one of the most, I think it's one of the most popular hymns in America, still for the last number of years. But they couldn't add it unless they altered one of the lines in the hymn. The line that they wanted to alter was this one. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. They did not want to hear about the wrath of God. So they wanted to exchange the wrath of God was satisfied to the love of God was magnified. 
Now, none of us have a problem with magnifying the love of God here. But you cannot take away the wrath of God because then you don't have the true God. You have a God made in our own image who cannot save us from our sins. The truth of the matter is every single time we see that anyone comes anywhere close to the holiness of God, they are scared to death because of their sin. You remember when Uzzah was killed? Because he tried to touch the Ark of the Covenant that represented the very presence of God, and he didn't do it without, first of all, being cleansed by the holiness and the holy priest. Instead, he touches it with his bare hands. Immediately, God's anger breaks out against him in wrath. And David is, 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 is upset. He wants to send the Ark away because of it, because we don't understand how holy God is. If God does not demonstrate His wrath against sin, He's not a holy God. He's some other idol that we've made up to do what we want. Jesus had to take on human flesh in order that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest to make propitiation for our sins. But not only that, he didn't just appease God's anger so that we could be at peace with God. And this is a huge issue. In our understanding of our assurance of salvation, you have to understand this. We don't go to heaven because we try to be good. We go to heaven because God is no longer angry with us. Because God has satisfied His own wrath by sending His own Son. In fact, most of us think of the wrath of God merely as the Father in the Old Testament. We don't think of the wrath of God of Jesus in the New Testament. But if you look at Romans, Revelation chapter 6, when the people who have not repented of their sins are crying out for the rocks and the mountains to fall down upon them, do you know why they're calling out? It says they are afraid of the wrath of the Lamb who is seated on His throne and they are scared to death of Him. The image of Christ in the New Testament at the end of all the Scripture is with fire in His eyes and the sword coming out of His mouth in judgment in wrath because Jesus is a holy God. And the only way we will ever be at peace with God is because that same wrathful Lamb of God loved us enough to lay down His life for us so that we could be at peace with God. That's the first part. But then in addition to that, it says He has become this merciful and faithful high priest because he had to enter into our humanity to be tempted just as we are, and yet not sin. You know, uh, it's been said a number of times that, uh, well, Jesus didn't sin, so he wouldn't know what it's like. He never really suffered like we do. But if you look at, at the imagery that's given to us in the Garden of Gethsemane, it says as he has been tested, as he's been tempted, as he's looking toward the cross, He's sweating drops of blood. He is in such agony and turmoil as he is overcoming the temptation to walk away from the cross. The problem is most of us don't think of Jesus as having suffered from temptation because we have been so quick to give in to it ourselves. You, you realize the suffering gets much worse the longer you say no to temptation. Uh, one of the commentators put it this way, which bridge has undergone the greatest stress? The one that collapses under the first load of traffic? Or the one that continues to bear that same traffic morning after morning, year after year? Jesus, his whole life is being tempted by the devil. 
And the suffering just gets greater and greater and greater, even to the point where he's about to go to his death. The devil is tormenting him in his soul. And he enters into that why for our sakes. So that he can prove to be a merciful and faithful high priest to us. Because, because he has been tempted, as we have been, he's merciful to He knows what it feels like. And yet he is faithful because he did not sin. Now, why is he bringing this up to them? Well, because they are in the midst of temptation right now. They are tempted to turn away from Christ because they're being persecuted. And they're thinking, well, why, why do I need this Jesus? Because Jesus is their faithful high priest who is even at that moment interceding on their behalf with great love and mercy and faithfulness to them. And yet, they don't see it. He says to them later on, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood in this persecution. The Lord Jesus has. He knows what you're going through. He's endured it. And he's overcome it. Why? Verse 14, 15, that he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. What, what, what you have to understand, these Jewish Christians are afraid. They're afraid that they're going to die for their faith. Again, we talked about this the other day. That's the reason why they've stopped going to church. And he says, don't forsake the assembly of the believers. Why? They're stopped going to church because they know that if they do, they're marked. Marked for persecution, perhaps marked for death. And he's telling them, Jesus has gained the victory over death. You can trust him. He knows what that's like. He's been there and he's won the battle. But the author of Hebrews has more to say about it. So he goes on to one more movement, the third point, how the church in Christ Jesus is constituted as a new humanity. In, the, in, in this last section, he refers to the same group of people a number of times by different names. He, he calls them sons of glory. He calls them sanctified ones. He calls them his brothers, the brothers of Jesus. And he also calls them the offspring of Abraham. He says, it is for these people that Jesus makes propitiation, that he appeases the anger of God on their behalf so that they can have peace even in the midst of this storm. In verses 12 and following, the writer of Hebrews shares three quotes from the Old Testament to show how Christ is helping his church even now in the midst of the storm. The first quote he gives is from Psalm 22. Most of us know that one. Clearly messianic psalm talks about seemingly, obviously, Jesus on the cross, suffering on the cross. But after his suffering is over, in Psalm 22, that same suffering servant says, Now I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Now, now not, not only is Jesus suffering on behalf of his brothers, he is now leading them, if you will, as a pioneer of a new song, a new song of deliverance. In other words, he is the new worship leader of the church. Uh, the word for congregation, as it's quoted in Psalm 22 in the Old Testament, the Septuagint, uh, is the word ecclesia. It's the same word that's used again and again in the New Testament referred to the church. He's saying, in the midst of the church, 
I now declare your praise. And this praise is a praise of deliverance, salvation. Just as Moses and Miriam, if you remember in the Old Testament, after God had delivered them out of Egypt through the body of the Red Sea, they have a new song to sing. And now Jesus is saying, I am the worship leader who is leading you to sing a new song unto the Lord. I am your Savior. I lead you into new and a glorious future. Let's sing unto the Lord together. So uh, it's interesting, there's a quote from John Calvin, the reformer. He says this, this teaching is the very strongest encouragement to us to bring yet more fervent zeal to the praise of God when we hear that Christ leads our praise and is the chief conductor of all our hymns. One of the evidences of a true Christian, the easiest evidences, is when they come together with the church of God, they want to sing. Every time I've ever had someone who has come to church and wondered, and they're not singing, I'm like, why aren't you singing? This is salvation. God has given us such a great salvation from our sin, from slavery to the devil, from the wrath of God. Why don't you sing? Clear mark of the church of God. It's a singing body. Can't help but sing. But in addition, he gives a second quote, verse 13. This time he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 8, verse 17. And then the next one he quotes from Isaiah 8, verse 18. Uh, if you remember, Isaiah 7 and 9 are clearly messianic. Uh, prophecies about Emmanuel, the coming of the Son, is going to be born to King. Uh, I, Isaiah 8 is right in the middle of those two passages. And there, uh, the quote that he pulls out of that is just simply, I will put my trust in Him. So Je it's putting in the words of Jesus, I will put my trust in Him. If you remember when Jesus is on the cross, at first from Psalm 22, saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But toward the end, what does He say? I will I put my spirit into your hands I commit my spirit. I trust in you. And so not only is Jesus the, the pioneer in leading them out of their slavery, leading them into singing, but teaching them how to trust the Lord in the darkest of days, in the, in the most difficult persecution they could ever face. Jesus has been there. He has been persecuted. And at that moment, he's still saying, I trust my spirit to you. I trust you. Therefore, you can trust him as well. Then finally, also in verse 13, he says, Behold, I and the children God has given me. And those words originally are Isaiah. He's actually, it's pictured as if he has his hands on both of his sons. Both of his sons have very unusual names, very long Hebrew names. One of them talks about basically the oppression from their enemies. And the other son's name means, but yet a remnant will be spared. And then Isaiah means the Lord is salvation. And he's saying, with his sons there, these are the sons that you, that you have given me. I have hope for the future because you are my God. I can continue to trust you in that sense. Uh, but, but notice it's in the context of this uh, thing where basically Christ is saying he, he's not ashamed to call them his brothers. He's not ashamed to own them as his own, as his little ones, as his people. That's why he keeps calling them sons of glory. These are the brothers of Jesus, right? The question, though, is, and this is the, the big issue, the writer of Hebrews is saying, Jesus is not ashamed to call you his brother, but are you ashamed to call him yours? Because that's what's happening. These Jewish Christians are wanting to turn away from him. They're ashamed. 
of calling him brother. If, if singing praises unto God in the name of Jesus is one of the clear marks of a Christian, another clear mark is someone who clearly, readily, eagerly identifies with Jesus no matter where they're at. That was Peter's problem, right? When he's being tempted. Immediately he wants to push away Christ. I don't know that man. Curse, I don't know that man. But eventually... He's praising his name, proclaiming his gospel to all the world, and then is dying for his faith because of it. Again, he's saying, these are the marks. Someone who trusts in God. Someone who's singing the praise of God in the name of Jesus. Someone who readily and eagerly identifies with Jesus. That's what constitutes this new humanity that's been redeemed out of slavery. And so... Basically, the author is saying to these people and to us, trust in Jesus. Look to Jesus. You remember um, uh, when Jesus came to his disciples on the water, uh, when uh, the storm had come and the, the wind and the waves were all whipped up, and uh, Jesus walking on the water? You remember at first they thought he was a ghost? And, uh, but Peter had the, the nerve and had had enough faith who said, if it's you, Jesus, command me to come out on the water to you. That took some guts and quite a bit of faith. Again, there's a storm going around all, all over, and he's about to jump out of the boat and walk to Jesus. Never happened before, right? But he does. He starts walking to Jesus. But then the winds whip up more, and the waves get higher, and Peter takes his eyes off of Jesus. What happens? Immediately he begins to sink. Immediately. That's the point of this whole book. You take your eyes off of Jesus. You're not just drifting. You're sinking. You will not last. You will not persevere unless you continue to look to Jesus. He is the pioneer, the founder, the captain of our salvation. You have to continue to cling to Jesus. Later on in the same letter, he says this, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? Looking to Jesus, the founder, perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. That makes no sense to us, but basically for the joy, the glory. He was willing to endure all of it. Do we have that same mindset? He says, despising the shame and is even now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Uh, I'm going to go, uh, I have some family in town. Uh, uh, my wife's sister, brother-in-law, is actually a ruling elder of mine at one time, and a fellow InterVarsity Bible study leader and fellow guitarist and a bunch of other things. Friend, we just call him that. Um, but we're, we're going to go, I'm going to take, I have, I have not been anywhere in Michigan. We're going to take them to the Shipwreck Museum, one of the places way up there somewhere. And I was fascinated because at that shipwreck, they explained to you that Lake Superior is one of the few lakes that never gives up its dead. If anyone sinks in Lake Superior, you're pretty much going to still be there. In fact, the, the, the Edmund Fitzgerald, apparently they saw a guy who's still fully clothed with his head down in the sediment to this day because apparently too cold, bacteria can't live, never raises the bodies up from the water. I think of those slaves in the river that got clogged in the the boat the bodies of the body 
He's saying that it's very much like that. You will sink and you will never come up again if you take your eyes off of Jesus. He is our only hope. He is the hope of humanity. Trust in Him. Look to Him. Cling to Him. Persevere in Him by faith. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You that You have beckoned us to come uh, to the house of worship. That we have heard the singing, the praises of, of God in the name of Christ. We have known those who have trusted in Christ. At some point in time, someone has told us about the gospel of Jesus Christ and most of us here have trusted in Him. Lord, I pray for those who have not yet, they would see how quickly they are sinking into the abyss. And Lord, I pray for those who have walked away from Him that at one time Jesus was their all in all, but now it just seems like it's just not doing anything for them. Oh, Father, wake them up by Your Spirit. Awaken them to the glory of Jesus Christ seated on His throne as the victor over death and hell forever. Lord, give us faith to look to Him, to live for Him, and to live for His glory, we pray.